Today is January 5th, and welcome to the One Year Bible Tour Guide Podcast. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher at New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, and I hope to encourage you in reading through the scriptures in their entirety this year by each day reading consecutive passages from the One Year Bible, which draws daily from the Old and New Testaments and the books of Psalms and Proverbs. After each reading, I will point out highlights that you don't want to miss, which I believe will prove helpful as you make your way through the entire landscape of all 66 books of the Bible. We will pick up our reading from the book of Genesis today in chapter 11 with the account of the Tower of Babel. And in the New Testament, we will be starting Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's get started with Genesis chapter 11, and I am reading from the English Standard Version. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Shem's Descendants These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg, 430 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor two hundred years, and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived twenty-nine years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah a hundred and nineteen years, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived seventy years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. 
and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Aran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son's Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12. The Call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Chapter 13 So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So let's recap. In Genesis chapter 11, having been banished because of sin from the Garden of Eden, mankind sets up its counterfeit community outside the presence of God, a civilization east of Eden, 
called Babylon. There they created a counterfeit fellowship, a oneness of word, speech, and effort that excluded any interest in the glory of God. The human community declared independence from the Creator and His mandates. They attempt to exalt themselves through their own achievements. They said, let us build for ourselves a city. It is their self-made version of Eden. But Babylon is not God's garden. It is a city outside the desired will of God. It is a seedbed for sin to continue to reproduce. The spirit of Babylon is mankind making a name for himself. Centuries later, Nebuchadnezzar would have his hanging gardens of Babylon, a multi-story structure of imported plants and waterfalls, reputedly one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, built there. Counterfeiting divine fellowship, mankind attempts to consolidate the human community. Rather than building with God-given stones from Eden, they build with the manufactured bricks of Babylon. Instead of mortar, they use tar. Rather than exalting the name of the Lord, they exalt a name for themselves. They intend to reach into heaven through self-effort. Adam's prideful race asserts its energies independently from God. The tower is a symbol for human autonomy. Mankind no longer sees himself as accountable to God, but is out to prove his own worth through his success in living without him. Babylon literally means gate of the gods, and it represents the gateway to idolatry. The spirit of Babylon permeates the human society and will one day come to full expression in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, when it is ultimately destroyed. In Revelation 18, verse 21, we read, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. God's original plan was that humans should be fruitful and multiply, spreading out into all the world, filling the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. In Genesis 11, verse 4, we read how the people of the earth were opposed to this plan. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. By divine decree, Fallen man's attempt at building unity without reference to the true God are doomed to produce confusion, misunderstanding, and failure. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Genesis 11.8 In Mesopotamian mythology, the goddess Ninter calls for humanity to build cities and congregate in one place demanding that mankind be sedentary rather than nomadic. It is no wonder that when God calls Abram, he is to turn his back on the city and follow God for the rest of his life on a journey of faith. He sought a city whose builder and maker is God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, this is quite the opposite to Babylon. Divine intervention causes the confounding of languages and the dispersion of people groups throughout the earth. Genesis 11 begins with man setting out to build a great city. It ends with a man turning his back on one. It is the first of many failed social experiments in human history. In Genesis 11, verses 27 to 32, we're introduced to Abram and his wife Sarai. In Genesis 12, the Lord calls Abram, the son of Terah, an idolater, and tells him to leave his home and relations 
and walk into a relationship of trust and obedience to a land I will show you. The Lord gives Abram a promise to make his descendants a great nation, and through his seed, speaking not only of the nation of Israel, his descendants, but more specifically, Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise is remarkable in many ways. It encompasses not only Abram, but you and me. It's remarkable because Abram is 75 years old and his wife Sarah is barren. The fulfillment of this great promise would be the work of God. Abram is not perfectly obedient to God in that his father accompanies him from Ur of the Chaldees and Lot departs with him from Haran. He was told to go forth from his relatives and his father's household. When Abram arrives in Shechem in Canaan, the Lord gives further definition to his original promise. This land of Canaan is to become the possession of Abram's descendants. Abram builds an altar in Shechem where the Lord appears to him. Then Abram goes to a mountain between Bethel and Ai and builds another altar where he calls upon the name of the Lord. When the Bible uses all capital letters, L-O-R-D, it is a translation of the Hebrew word for the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, is a tetragrammaton, a word having four letters, Y-H-W-H. The vowel sounds breathed in between those consonants gives you the pronunciation Yahweh. During a time of famine, Abram abandons the land he was promised and goes down to Egypt for food. Abram knew that because of Sarai's beauty, she would be treated well. To protect himself, he asked Sarai to lie to the authorities and tell them that she is his sister and not his wife. Although Abram was treated well by the Egyptians for her sake, he was now in quite a predicament, and so was Sarai. They would suffer for their dishonesty. Because Pharaoh thought that Sarai was unmarried, he took her into his harem as a wife. The situation was now out of Abram's control, but not out of God's. The Lord caused plagues to come upon Pharaoh and his household in order to prompt Pharaoh to release Sarai. Pharaoh realizes that the plagues were caused by the fact that Abram was not being truthful with him. Abram and Sarai are asked to take leave with all their possessions. In Genesis 13, together with Lot, they return to the Negev and then to the place where he had built an altar between Bethel and Ai. Once again, Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. Now our reading from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 to 26. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So let's just take a moment to reflect upon the Sermon on the Mount as it begins. Jesus began his public ministry with a call to repent, that is to change their way of thinking. They were to repent of their sins and the sin to which we are most often blinded, which is self-righteousness. They were to repent of thinking that they could be justified, that is, make themselves in a right relationship with God, through their own good works. Jesus then said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was referring to the demonstrable fact that he was a living representative of God's righteousness. Jesus then went about all Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel is about the righteousness of God, in Romans 1.17. In Christ we have a living portrait of righteousness that is greater than that which was revealed on the tables of stone, the law of Moses. The gospel convicts us of sin. The gospel shows us that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Rather than being subject to the righteous rule of God and walking in the kingdom of light, we are born subject to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that now works in those who are disobedient and are walking in darkness, according to Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3. The Sermon on the Mount is an example of Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. If you ask, what does the kingdom of God look like? You look to Jesus. He exhibits what it means to be under the rule of God, and he also preaches what this looks like. And what he makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount is that the standard of the kingdom of God is unreachable for sinners apart from faith in God's Son, the perfect God-man. Through his provision, of perfect atonement for sin on the cross and his own perfect righteousness that he credits to those who believe, we can enter into his kingdom on his merits. He says in verse 20 of chapter 5, 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We cannot live the Sermon on the Mount without Christ's substitutionary death that provides for our pardon and his substitutionary life that provides the power for us to live righteously. For God has made Christ to be for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can enter into the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter takes up this theme. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In Acts 3.19 God designed us with basic hungers. The only hunger that truly satisfies is our God-given hunger for who Jesus is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus announces in his Sermon on the Mount that he came to fulfill both the law, that is the Torah, and the prophets. He also tells us in these verses that the law itself was a prophecy to be accomplished and that it would be accomplished in himself. Jesus was born under the law to fulfill the law by his righteous living and his substitutionary dying. In Galatians 4.4 4. He redeems those sentenced to death under the law through his own death as our substitute on the cross. Later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see that the revelation of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. This is the testimony of God the Father with Moses and Elijah as witnesses. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew 17.5 The Gospel of Luke tells us that they were discussing the greater exodus the greater departure, the death that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. And the word there for departure or death is the Greek word exodus. Jesus provides for us a way to escape God's wrath through his being crucified, buried, and raised from the dead on our behalf in Jerusalem. We find this in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Now we're reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor, as with a shield. So let's reflect upon Psalm 5. Apart from our Almighty and Holy God receiving us with the evidence of the full payment of our sin debt in the shed blood of Jesus, 
we have no hope of ever surviving an audience with God at the judgment seat. We can only come to God in the name that is the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the perfect work of redemption, we are protected by God's mercy and love, and we can worship with the deepest awe. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. So let us come boldly before the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Now reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. What we have here in this section of Proverbs is the strong warning that if people do not heed God's word, if they are duplicitous, if they are double-minded, they will not receive anything from the Lord. You cannot fool God. So let's pray. Gracious God and Father, your word makes plain that There are those who put their trust in your promises and those who do not. May we not refuse your outstretched hand, your counsel, your correction and reproof. Thank you for sending your word who turns the law that condemned us into a promise of a life that will fulfill us. Thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior, our Lord and our life. May we not neglect your commands but trust the sufficiency of your life to bring forth the obedience that is pleasing to you. Thank you for saving us from our corrupt and hell-bound course. Reproduce your life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to the degree that we become salting salt, holding back the spread of corruption, flavoring this world, and causing others to thirst after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining with me on our Bible reading tour. I hope that this is an encouragement to you. Please know that you are welcome to contact us by email with any questions or comments you may have. You can let us know how you are managing to keep the pace or where you may be struggling. Our email address is podcast at newlife.org. Also, we want you to know that you can receive a free written copy of the commentary portion on each passage from each day's readings in the one-year Bible by subscribing to a daily email at our website, newlife.org. Be sure that you don't miss a daily episode by subscribing to the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast wherever you get your podcasts, be it Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Pandora, Apple or Google Podcasts, YouTube. You can even ask Alexa to play the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast on iHeartRadio or whatever podcast service you may be utilizing. I hope you will join us tomorrow as we continue our reading through the Bible. And until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Shalom.